Good evening, everybody. I apologize. I realize I neglected to email out um, the handout, but we do have those in the back. If you haven't grabbed one of those, we can get that to you. We're going to continue our class this evening looking at another one of Paul's prayers, but this one is fundamentally like pretty different than what we've been looking at in Ephesians. It's still a run-on sentence, so we may have to parse through that, but it's like two verses and has maybe like two or three ideas within it. So this one should be much easier for us to wrap our arms around, and I'm excited to dig into it for several reasons, but that being one of them in particular. The theme for this prayer and for what we, we can take away from this is that uh, we pray to a God who like, really wants us to make spiritual progress in our lives. But even more than that, He's a God who will help us make that progress. He's not just saying, like, hey, I want you to do this and you're on your own. Um, he has the ability to transform suffering into growth, and His Word itself is transformative. His word is what brought everything into existence from nothing in the first place. And his word in Jesus replaces death with life. Like God is all about us making progress and helping us through that. And his word in particular is a tool that we can make progress with. It's living, it's enduring, and it equips the believer for every good work. So using His Word and His Spirit within us, this theme that we'll draw out is that Christians make progress throughout their lives until the last day. And in that last day, God is going to perfect them. So our prayer tonight comes from Philippians chapter 1. Does anybody know the context, just very broadly speaking, that Philippians is written in? prison letter. Yeah. Um, and Paul, if you skip down in Philippians to verse like 24, um, or maybe 25, he's convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all uh, for your progress and joy in the faith. So like he's got a pretty, he's anticipating a positive result from this trial. Um, but to put it mildly, he's been in the midst of like a really difficult journey. We read about um, at the end of Acts, some of the stuff that is going on with him, where he has been in prison for false charges for a couple years, and then he's had two like attempts made on his life, and then a shipwreck, and then he is waiting uh, for his trial in Rome. So despite... Um, the very difficult situation that he's in, Philippians just in general, is written with this overwhelming tone of positivity and like an emphasis on rejoicing. And we see that in the beginning um, of the, the context here of chapter 1. Let's go ahead and read the first eight verses together. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, 
for you, making, for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So to break down the context quickly, Paul starts his addressed to them by giving thanks to them and even mentioning like he's giving thanks to them in prayer all the time. He uses those phrases of all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all. And then in verse 6 he makes this point of emphasis that we'll circle back on later in the class that he is certain that God will bring to completion the good work he started within them at the day of Jesus Christ. Then in verse 7, maybe we can like read between the lines a little bit here and see that Paul could anticipate that maybe they're going to have a little bit of pushback for how much praise and how much uh, like affection he's showing to them. Um, And he defends it in verse 7 of, it is right for me to feel this way. But specifically, like the thing that he calls out and that he is very Um, appreciative of them for is verse 5, their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul like specifically calls out the Philippians for their support and faithfulness to him. And then at the end of Philippians, if you turn over to chapter 4, We read in verses like 15 through 17 that this uh, partnership and support for them has continued. That no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And then that culminates in verse 18 where uh, through the hands of Epaphroditus, which is a guy with just an awesome name, that, that they have sent him a gift of some additional assistance. So Paul is praising them and he's thankful for them because it seems like when nobody else really did, these guys were right next to him, supporting him in partnership. And he views that as a commitment to God and a commitment to the gospel. And so it's in that frame of mind that he's really grateful for them and all that they've done for him and all that he uh, has continued to receive from him that we then get into the prayer in verse, uh, verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we acknowledge the fact that this is one big run-on sentence 
if you look at the handout, there is maybe a structure shown for how to consider this or think about this. So Paul prays, and at the start, there is a fundamental request for love to abound that's informed by the gospel. And then for the purpose of all these so that phrases is so that you can discern what is best, so you can be pure and blameless or fruitful, uh, which then leads to fruitfulness, and then so that God may be glorified. So if you were to identify like the fundamental ask or request that Paul has in this prayer, what would that be? He gets into it right from the jump. The more, that's the great thing about love. The more love you show, the more you receive, and the more you want to give. That their love may abound. So I would, because uh, I want to be careful of acknowledging Chip's comment, because he may be actually giving away the secret to this class, because I, I agree uh, that this is for sure like the initial theme, but I think. Uh, spoiler alert, if we like look farther into it, his real prayer is that it's the glory and praise of God. Like that's what it's all about. Um, but for the intent of the next 20 minutes, let's pretend that it's uh, just this request that love would grow and abound. Um, this is interesting because he's praying that they would have more and more and more love. Does that seem weird to you, given the context that we just covered? And if it does, why would that be weird? Can you ever have too much love? If God is love, can you ever have too much God? Yeah, can you ever have too much of it? I think that gets to the heart of it, which is the fact that these guys are already doing a really good job of loving him, almost to the point when nobody else was. So it's kind of a weird ask to say, hey, I want you guys to, to love and abound more and more when this is already like maybe a singularly loving group. And that echoes what we've seen in First Thessalonians of hey, this group that's excelling, I want you to excel still more. Of like, hey, you're already doing really well, but there is another level that you can continue to go to. And that's this theme of like God wanting us to make progress. Now the phrase, your love abounding, um, it's the love of what or love of who? Like what is he talking about with your love? Yes. <laughs> Okay, expand on that a little more. Uh, you, can't, uh, you can't love God without loving your fellow man. If you don't love your fellow man, you don't love God. So, yes, your love has to abound. There's a boundless region in which that has to take place. There are no boundaries to it. Hmm. There's no boundaries to it. It's great. Plus, when you, when you love somebody else... You, your knowledge of discernment will not be skewed through selfish lens. Or if you, when you love, it's through the lens of love when you discern knowledge, as opposed to discerning knowledge with bias or opinions or things like that, where it would be true knowledge. Yeah. So we'll actually get into that of like what is the requirement for love to be accompanied by knowledge and discernment. What's that about? But generally, yeah, like it's either. 
love that is for God or love that's for other people, but you can't really fully have one without the other. Or at the very least, if you have love for other people, but you don't have love for God, that's pretty empty. So the love that he wants to abound, I think, is maybe intentionally ambiguous, but like it's all interconnected. Um, But we can understand maybe the ambiguity of that by understanding that this prayer uh, in what comes next is that it's a love that increases in knowledge and discernment, which is uh, Alan's point. So why is that something he would pray for? That the love that they have would have knowledge and discernment. Like why, if you just shorthand knowledge and discernment to wisdom, why is it important to have love with wisdom? Because love driven entirely emotionally can come with them and knowledge to not just go by what feels right. It's very important. Yeah. Um, Love driven entirely by emotions can lead you to the wrong conclusions. I like the way you phrase that. Maybe another way to think about it, same thing, is that like, if you don't have wisdom with your love, you'll either love the wrong things or you'll love the right things the wrong way. And you'll say, oh, well, like, I love God, but I don't have very much wisdom, so he probably doesn't care like, how I live my life, right, as long as I love him. Or you'll say, hey, like, I just love the things of the world and the things that gratify my flesh, and like, I don't have any wisdom in the things that I'm choosing to love in the first place. So love has to be accompanied by wisdom. But I think the inverse of this is also true, that like, wisdom or knowledge has to have love. And 1 Corinthians 8 talks about that, where knowledge without love, it just says puffs up. It doesn't actually do anything for you. So maybe to put a bow on that, Paul isn't praying for growth in more love and knowledge, but he's praying for love that is informed by knowledge, right? Like it's a very specific kind of love. And that leads into our next section of this, um, this idea of knowing what is best with knowledge and discernment, and then in knowing that, that produces this result of you being blameless and pure for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. So this is maybe like building on all these points of if we know how to discern how we should love in the first place, we will then like know what's best. Or in other words, like if we're filled with love and we know what's best, we have love and knowledge, that leads to us actually doing what's best, which is this whole idea of being filled with the fruit of righteousness and being pure and blameless. Does that make sense? Like if we love what's best and we know what's best, that naturally produces us doing what's best which gets us to this state of being pure and blameless. I think one way to understand this is also like to think about what this doesn't mean. And this is maybe circling back to the idea of like loving the right things with the wrong reasons or loving the wrong things, um, of maybe loving without knowing what's best. 
And to me, I hear this all the time through the lens of people saying, well, you should just love me as I am. Or if you really loved me, you would accept me as I am and not require me to conform to God's standards or your standards or to make any changes. And that leads to, like, loving, kind of, without actually knowing what's best. Like, true love is not just telling people that they can live however they want and God's not going to care or there's not going to be consequences for that or that's the plan that God has for them. Um, true love and knowledge and discernment would, like, lead us to act in a way that might seem even a little bit countercultural to what the world would call as love. Does that idea resonate and connect with the difference between like loving with knowledge and loving with understanding and loving the, and approving what's excellent versus like, yeah, just love me as I am and like what's actually excellent doesn't really matter. Yeah, totally agree. The let me run into the burning building, and uh, if you tell me not to, that's not really loving me, kind of thing. Like I'm with you. Yeah, uh, John and then Chip. I think of a lot of things from mathematical equations, and this sort of falls into that. So God is love. Christ demonstrated His love by dying for us, even when we were enemies of Him. So He loved us enough to die for us. But he also was the one that spoke most about the ramifications of not being right with God. So he loved us enough to die for us. But he also, out of everyone in the Bible, spent more time talking about hell than anybody else. And he also says, by this, you will, the world will know that you are mine. It's how you love one another. So it's not just this blanket, single purpose love. It's a very specific kind of love that mm -hmm. is allows us to love people even when they're not right, but we still love them and we want what's best for them. It's not an approval thing, but it's a, I will do anything for you or for one another. You know, we will do anything we should do and we want to do anything we can for one another. The same way that Christ did for us. So. I think that gets into this concept, and then we'll come to Chip's point, of like, and so that you would be pure and blameless. Like, we're not really loving other people or helping them to discern with all knowledge if we're letting them live in a way or we're ourselves living in a way that isn't pure and blameless. Yeah, Chip. John, you know, the premise of what I was thinking is that the kind of love we're talking about here is a agape love. And when God loves us, He knows what's best for us. And He provides us with a path to um, have the things that we need best for us. So if we're being like God when we love other people, we're trying to look for what's best for them. Um, and uh, we will be self-sacrificing if it's best for them. So I think of this in terms of a marriage. 
a couple of things, you know, at the beginning. You, you, you want our love to abound more and more. Would you tell your wife that, hey, my love's tapped out? There's no more. I have all, I've given you everything I've got. No. It's supposed to abound more and more. And the more you get to know the person, for me, the more I love. So the more familiar my brothers and sisters, the more I love them. And the more I should be willing, as John said, to do for them. To make them all that they can be. That's what's best for them. So it's all about, it's not about how I feel this love. It's not how does it make me feel. It's actually about what does it make me do? Well, I think that leads into the, the glory and praise of God, right? Like, if we're going to emulate the way that God loved us with this larger principle, um, the way that we love other people is something we probably have to, like, work at. And we have to have knowledge and discernment to understand. It doesn't come super, uh, like, immediately natural to us, but we've got to work at it so that then the way we love and sacrifice and treat other people ultimately circles down to glory and uh, praise of God. Yeah, Greg and then Belinda. I think this is every, what both gentlemen have said already, but you take this and, and put it in the context of he's going to make multiple statements leading up to chapter 2 and then multiple away from chapter 2, but pointing back to the perfection and the glory of Christ himself. Um, here, Paul's in verse 8 had started out with, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ, the love of Christ, if you will. It's not the same word, but I think it's the same idea. And these guys have hit on the, I think, hit it perfectly. It's not just loving someone so much that you want to see them receive that grace and the love that you've received, but it's it's a love that that challenges you to live to the perfection of Christ, which is, I mean, I think what he says. Yeah, that's where we're headed. Is that idea of the. Um, I want your love to abound more and more. Just that statement alone feels very reminiscent of last week where we said, I want you to know the length and width and depth and height of Christ. I want you to know Him. And you still won't be able to understand Him. But it's the same idea here is your love should abound, which is to go beyond any measurement you can give. And do that more. And do it again more. Like, I mean, he's just really saying it's, it's a pursuit that is continual and should impact every decision we make. Yes, that's well said. Belinda. I like the phrase that he used when he said that it's progression. I've heard it said that God loves me just the way I am, but he loves me too much to just leave me there. So that it, it is a progression. He loves me just... He loved me when I was a sinner. Christ died for me when I was a sinner. Sure. But he also loves me too much to leave me in my That's the way we should be with putting That is a beautiful segue to our next point, which is this idea of being pure and blameless. Um, I want to think of how to ask that question. What is he getting at here with us to be pure and blameless? Including a life that is approached to the 
even if it's in what seemingly is an unrelated way, all one big package from the outside. So I think what you, you said there about living a life that way, that I think it's the idea. Because it's not about us achieving some state of being blameless and perfect. Like First John wrestles with this a lot. Of if you say that you have no sin, you're a liar. But if you're walking with Him in the light, then there's no darkness within you. And you're like, well, how can those two things be true? This idea that we can be pure and blameless is not about saying we have to achieve like perfection and we can't ever sin again or this is all ruined. Because um, that newsflash, like that's going to happen. But instead, the, the growth that is envisioned in this prayer is the path that all Christians must be on to be prepared to meet Jesus who will then complete that work on the day of Jesus. Yeah. Well, I think the book also has some, some context of people who are doing things that appear right, but maybe doing them right? In the next you know, little bit, Paul's going to talk about people that are spreading Jesus' name with the, with the goal not to, to spread the gospel, but really with the goal to harm him and, and increase his burden and judgment. Uh, at the end of the book, for the book in chapter 3, we're going to talk about people whose God is their belly are going to go to destruction versus being the ones who are seeking after God and that He will transform you. So I think, I think part of the concept of blamelessness here and combining love, knowledge, and discernment is. Uh, motivations are very important for why we do things. And we cannot be blameless if we do the right things. But we do them because our desire is our own uplifting, or our desire is to gain power, or whatever. Refer back to all of our sermon and mount classes on Sunday mornings. Sure. For examples of that, that conflict of people who may be doing, in some cases, the right thing, that didn't actually aid in their righteousness. Yeah, loving the, the right things for the wrong reasons to circle to the ultimate purpose of this prayer does not glorify and praise God. Um, I, I do want to sit on this point, though, just quickly. The idea that, like, to some extent, at the day of Christ, like, we, we read of this in scriptures, like, that's when we'll be fully perfected. Until we get there, we're on the path But Paul's confidence that God will eventually complete the work within them and perfect them doesn't stop him from praying that they'll be pure and blameless in the meantime. Right? He's saying like, yeah, God will perfect you in that day, but along the way, like you need to make sure your motivations are right, you need to make sure your heart's right, and just because he's going to do it one day doesn't mean that you're off the hook and you don't have to try and live that way right now. And that's why your knowledge has to be with discernment and the way that you approve things is excellent so that you'll give glory to God. Um, I wrote a fake quote from Paul that said, yeah, it's going to happen eventually, but you still need to be working towards it daily. Paul, maybe. Um, 
Adam liked the joke. Um, so, uh, it was a joke. It was a joke, completely, yeah. So anyways, the, uh, the prayer ends with to the glory and praise of God, which is a familiar ending for Paul, but it is not just like a throwaway, sincerely type phrase. This is the essence of this prayer, and I think to Chip's original point, uh, that's what this prayer is really about. And we can understand this by reading the prayer backwards or deconstructing it. Um, that it's not a request at its core for love informed by the gospel that produces certain results, but instead, it's that God would be glorified, which occurs as the Philippians are blameless and pure, full of the fruit of righteousness, and that only happens when they grow in love and knowledge and discernment. So he's praying that God would be glorified through all these other things, and that they're going to need to abound in love in order to achieve that. That takes us in directly to the first of our takeaways. Uh, the first one on the sheet here is the prayer for the glory of God. If the chief end of man is to glorify God, right? If that's what the heart of Paul's prayer is here, if that's what like we're here to do in the first place is to glorify God, then this should be reflected in all of our prayers. And it should even really shape the way that we're praying. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't ever, like, ask for personal things. We've looked at plenty of other examples where you can ask for personal things. And it shouldn't be that our concerns are merely just like submitted to God's will. And we've talked about that a little bit of like, God, I really hope that you grow my business if it's your will. Like, and just taking the things that we want and throwing them into his will. But our prayers should be shaped around a concern for God being glorified. Like if that's what this is all about, then that's the thing we should care about and that's the thing we should be concerned about. And that's how we live our lives, and that's how we pray. That, that is at the root. And I think we see that in Jesus' model prayer of teaching to the disciples, of hallowed be your name, frames everything else after that within the context of trying to hallow or glorify God's name or to give him glory. Everything else you ask for after that is within this subtext. Um, so our concern, if we extrapolate it from this, for growth or love that's abounding more and more and more shouldn't just be about our growth in and of itself. And the progress we make as Christians shouldn't just be like, man, I want to be better. It's, the Bible is not a self-improvement book with that as the sole focus, but it's about Him being glorified through our growth. And just a hunch, maybe that's why Paul prays for it so much. <laughs> like in, in all of these prayers. Closely related to that is the, our next point of the prayer for the will of God. This, um, you could also read this as um, praying the promises, which has been a theme that we have looked at in a lot of these um, previous prayers and classes. Um, does somebody want to take a stab at summarizing 
the benefit or like the theme that we've pulled through this of praying the promises of how we can be on sure footing by praying the promises? Like, what does that mean? There's not in this one an overt reference to God's will or his character or his promises. But in this prayer, that theme is consistent. And we see that in the context that we looked at. Uh, Do you remember verse 6? I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That is the foundation that Paul is building on when he prays for them to abound in discerning love and blameless purity and have the fruit of righteousness. It's within the context that God has already started something within you and he's going to finish it. And in between now and then, this is how you need to live. Um, If you look in Philippians 2... Verses 12 and 13 talk about the concept of working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or in other words, how this prayer relates to praying the promises of God is that Paul's prayer isn't doing anything more than asking God to do that that he already started. He's saying like, hey, I know that God started a work within you, this transforming, redeeming work, and I know he's going to do it. And in the meantime, I want you guys to abound in love because that's God's will, that this is what he wants to do with your life, is to redeem you and perfect you and make you blameless and pure, and so you need to live that way right now. And he can do that with this radical bluntness and boldness because he's really confident what he's praying about is something that God is doing. We do the same thing um, when we pray the promises of God, when we pray the character of God, when we pray the overarching plan of God or the message of the gospel. Like, can't you see how we could be so bold and root our petitions and our concerns within this larger subtext of to God's glory when the things that we're praying about are the things that he's already doing to bring him glory. When we pray that we want the lost to be saved and the gospel to go into every corner of the world, that's something that gives glory to God and we know that that's something that God inherently wants. So we can be like really, really bold in that. When we pray that God would be merciful or patient or steadfast, like we can be really confident in that because he's shown himself to be that way. And that continued exhibition of his character brings him glory. So doing that is a must and it's a game changer. Our third point of this connection between knowledge and love and behavior is something Adam touched on briefly. Um, And we, we talked about this within Ephesians through the phrase of greater knowledge leads to greater living. 
But this prayer adds an element of love. Uh, and almost verbatim, I could rewind and quote Chip of what he was saying. Uh, I really have to stop him from reading my notes. But um, if you love something, you'll want to learn more about it. And as you learn more about it, your behavior changes. And the same principle extrapolates to other people. If you love other people, you want to go spend more time around them. You want to understand them more deeply. And then that will inform how you interact with them. And if you love Jesus, you're going to want to spend more time with him every day. You're going to want to know more of his character and what he's like. And you'll have a more finely tuned ear to discern his will. And then you'll live in more accordance with that. Something like, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So there's this connection between love and knowledge and behavior. And then our last point is living and praying with a view of eternity. And that's a concept that's seen a couple of different times in Scripture. Second Corinthians talks about this through the idea of don't look to the things that are seen, but look and live for the things that are unseen, a.k.a. like the eternal, and live in view of that. Hebrews mentions how the faithful looked to a better country as the homeland that they were seeking, or they were viewing this eternal reward. Um, in this prayer, the way that we live in view of eternity is living within verse 10, within this day of Christ. There's a quote from a book called Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson that just like, it hits this perfectly. It's a little wordy, but it's really good. The church is to see itself as an outpost of heaven. It is a microcosm of the new heaven and the new earth, brought back, as it were, into our temporal or earthly sphere. We are still contaminated by failures, sin, relapses, rebellion, self-centeredness. We are not yet what we ought to be. But by the grace of God, we are not what we were. For as long as we are left here, we are to struggle against sin and anticipate as much as we can what it will be like to live in the untarnished bliss of perfect righteousness. We are to live with a view to the day of Christ. And like, yeesh, that is so, so good and so scripturally true and correct. And if that's how we're supposed to live with a view towards eternity, we should pray that way too. So questions for reflection, just, just the one of under what circumstances would you pray this prayer? If we were to use this prayer as a template and construct our own prayer that has a similar objective to glory and praise of God, 
with abounding love and these other components, what would that sound like? God will never reach the love you have for us, but help us to try and to grow in love towards you and others. Help us to help me to be different from the world and to remain to see that difference that I am different from the world. To I think the only component in that, maybe two that we haven't hit, is that somehow pinning this and referencing this on the day of Christ or the concept of meeting Jesus, that, that we want to look a lot like him and we want to know him and we want to be rooted in him when we meet him face to face, that it's not an introduction for the first time, but it's like, man, it's good to see you. Um, Let's go ahead and pray that prayer. This is, um, th- this is probably the one that for me, maybe the, the most in this class I've connected with, just personally. Um, I hope this has been helpful for you guys. Let's continue to pray. Father, it's our prayer that although we will never reach the love that you have for us, that we would try and that you would help us in trying and that we would grow in our love towards you and towards others and that it would abound. 
that in moments of reflection when we would see our love failing or falling short for others who we may deem unlovable or hard to love, that we would recognize the love you showed to us when we really were unlovable and that you would help us to abound in a pure and blameless love that would make us pure and blameless for the day that we meet Jesus face to face. Help us to have wisdom and discernment with our love that we love the right things for the right reasons and that we approve what's excellent. And that in light of all of that, that would help us to be different and righteous and pure and blameless and clearly differentiated from the world so that others would see it and want to respond and that the whole world and every tongue and every knee and every person would bow to you, to your praise and your glory. Amen.